We're in the book of Philemon. I'm going to preach the entire book, kind of. I hope it's a help to you. Philemon really is an incredible book of the Bible. They all are, I know, but, but I, I like the book of Philemon. Now, there's a lot of ways to measure that, but I'm especially arrested by how personal the book of Philemon is. Of the 13 epistles that are written by Paul, 14 if you count Hebrews, and I do, only four are written to individuals, and those four are only written to three individuals. Timothy got two of them, Titus got one, and then Philemon. One would assume that Paul wrote hundreds of letters to people, and each one of them would have been of a measurable value to the recipient. But only these four were personal letters that were written under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. Of these four, First and Second Timothy, Titus, only Philemon takes us into such an intimate setting. First and Second Timothy and Titus have much to say about church polity and pastoral conduct and doctrinal purity and things like that. But only Philemon is a letter that is written from one friend to another. It's a friend asking the other to do something for him. Now, Paul doesn't pull rank. He could have. He could have commanded Philemon to grant his request through spiritual authority. Now, he does allude to some of the spiritual blessings that God has used Paul to bring into his life. He does touch on that a little bit, as you would expect him to. But ultimately, Paul relies on their friendship. Philemon is a wealthy man. He is a generous man man there in Colossae. He's allowed his home to be used for the gathering of believers, the church that's in his house. And so we look at this thriving believer and we see one thing that's still pretty big blot on Philemon. And it's this. He remains a slave owner. Now some understandably take issue with Philemon as a slave owner and some take issue with Paul because they don't feel like he says enough in the matter of slavery. I'd like to consider a few things just before we get into this, okay? Let me go on record, if I've not already done so, and I have. Slavery of any form was, is, and always will be a wicked sin against God, a pariah throughout human existence. Nobody in their right mind would find any way to justify the practice of slavery. Now, some offer the idea that God is silent on the matter of slavery. He is not. Or that he allows it. He does not. But they think that his perceived silence on any given subject means he endorses it. That is not so. It's like plural marriage. You see all kinds of examples of people in the Old Testament having more than one wife. And because God doesn't come down on them with a thunderbolt every time they do it, God must be okay with plural marriage. No, he is not. The whole of Scripture teaches one man, one woman for one lifetime. And you see over and over again the bad consequences of plural marriage. It never works out. Also be advised that Paul's writings in the Bible were under God's superintendence and they reflect God's views, not necessarily his. So if you're mad at somebody, be mad at God, not Paul. 
Now let's talk about Philemon. Again, nobody in their right mind would ever justify slavery. But remember this, people like Philemon were saved out of a culture in which slavery was as normal as any other transaction. To expect Philemon to be fully sanctified in the moment of his conversion is as unrealistic as expecting a newly saved American to instantly hold all the right political views. The growth that happens within sanctification takes time, and God was still working on Philemon just like God is still working on you and on me. Paul displays a position that the best course of action in the battle against slavery or anything else that's wicked for that matter is not necessarily to march, legislate, or disrupt. These approaches do have varying degrees of utility and success, but they are not close to being as effective as introducing people to the Savior of mankind and allowing the Holy Spirit to change them from the inside out. I'm not against marching. I'm not against legislating. I'm not against doing what I can to do away with, oh, let's say abortion. But let me tell you what fixes abortion quicker than anything. You get somebody saved and the Holy Ghost living in their lives, they'll stop having abortions. Now, why do I bring all that up? Because I don't want it to be a distraction from the message of the book, the letter to Philemon. Yes, he owned slaves. And one of them, a man named Onesimus, has stolen from him and run away. Onesimus predictably has the idea that he can blend into a mass of people, and the best place to go for that is the city of Rome. I'm going to go to Rome and nobody's going to know who I am. They're not going to know where I came from. Nobody is going to find me. I've stolen enough to live off of. I'm going to be fine. But what he doesn't predict is that God in his sovereignty would guide Onesimus through millions of people right to Paul. Paul ends up leading Onesimus to Christ and puts him to work for him there in Rome. John Phillips has a great line here. He says, Paul preached no cheap gospel. What does he mean by that? Onesimus, now that he's saved, has a responsibility to face Philemon and account for his actions. He would arrive in Colossae with the letter, and legally Philemon could exact any punishment he wished on Onesimus, including crucifixion. But the letter that Onesimus brings with him is Paul's letter, and in it is his plea that Philemon forgive Onesimus, but not just forgive him, receive him as a brother. This short note, 25 verses, not only is a primer on how to lovingly seek an answer, it is a magnificent picture of Christ's redemption of fallen man. There's a lot of names that are mentioned in the book of Philemon. Sure, we know Philemon and Onesimus, but how about Apphia? We're pretty sure that's Philemon's wife. Archippus, Philemon's son. Those of you that like horses, Archippus means master of the horse. It's not out of the realm of possibility that Philemon had a, had a bunch of horses. He was rich. And maybe Archippus had grown up riding those horses and had earned that nickname. He also is probably one of the church elders. Colossians 4.17 mentions him in that regard. 
You've got Epaphras who's mentioned, the founder of the church at Colossae. Paul had not yet been there. He was influential in that church getting started, but he didn't start it. Epaphras did. Then you got Marcus, who's probably John Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, who's probably Luke. There's a lot of names and a lot of perspectives that we could look at the book of Philemon from, but I'm interested in one in particular, and this is going to sound strange, but I'm interested in a name that's not in the book of Philemon. There's a name, we know he was there. We know he was involved, and here's how we know. The books of Philemon and Colossians were written at nearly the same time, from the same place, and were delivered together to the same destination. Colossians goes to the church at Colossae, and the, book of, and the letter to Philemon is a personal letter to Philemon, who is part of the church at Colossae. Now, I've always suspected this, but to be sure, I called Scott Pauley. He agrees with me. And so, when you read in Colossians, and by the way, I, I can't separate the two books anymore. I've always kind of melded Colossians and Ephesians together because they're so similar. But no, it's Colossians and Philemon that interlace and interweave. And so, there's a man mentioned in the book of Colossians as being the one that actually delivers this message. Colossians 4, verses 7 through 9, tell us about a man named Tychicus. Now, why does Tychicus interest me? Because, first of all, he's not involved. He's not Onesimus. He's not the one that potentially could be killed. He's not Philemon, the one who's been wronged. He is a bystander, a godly bystander, but a bystander nonetheless. Now, think about this. He's there when Onesimus shows up. He's there to watch Paul write the letter. He delivers the letter. And he's there to see what happens when Philemon reads it. Tychicus has got a front row seat to what is going on. And so I've tried to read this and study this from the perspective of this guy named Tychicus. I, <laughs> I wonder what he did when he handed Philemon the letter knowing what was in it. You suppose maybe... Maybe when, you know, he's, he's got the scroll here. Hey, Philemon, how you doing? I just gave, the, I just gave, um, I just gave Archippus the one to the church at Colossae, but uh, Paul's got one for you. You better sit down. Because there's somebody outside wants to see you. Well, he doesn't want to see you, but he has to see you. But, but read this first. See, I know what's in it. You may like it. You may not. I'm going to watch. Tychicus, man, he's just, he's got this front row seat. He is, he's in the middle of all of this without being responsible for any of it, which is always the best, you know. So with that in mind, now that I've curled up my manuscript, I want to take some time this morning and explore what Tychicus saw what Tychicus saw. Father, help us to see what you want us to see this morning. Help me to preach it in just the way you want to. Please speak to hearts and give us exactly what we need. Somebody here may need to be saved. Some Christians may need to be encouraged and helped. Whatever the case may be, would you help us today?
And may Jesus be lifted up in it. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. What Tychicus saw, first of all, he saw a slave who was guilty. Look at verse number 10. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, who I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable. Verse number 18, he says, If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, which implies that he stole from him. He is a slave who was guilty. Now, many would say, but a slave has every right to seek his freedom. He can't help what he's been born into. I agree with that. That may be true, but even so, Onesimus is responsible for his actions. He could not help that he was born a slave, but he could help that he stole from Philemon. Now, why, why do we even bring that up? Why is that necessary? When I'm witnessing to people, when I'm talking to people about what we believe in about our faith, one of the toughest things for people to get past is this idea that we are sinners by nature and sinners by birth. You mean I was born a sinner? Yes. I have a sin nature? Yes. Then I don't have a choice. Well, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair that I was born in sin and I can't help myself. Why does God hold me responsible for something I had no control over? To be candid, it's a fair question. And it's one that I can't fully answer. I can't dig into all the ins and outs of our federal position in Adam. The fact is, because we descend from Adam, all of us are born with an inherent sin nature. We, we, we are sinners by our birth. Now, we could talk about innocence and age and point of accountability and all of that, but fundamentally, we're all sinners from day one. Those of us that have children, we know. Children on their own know how to lie. They know how to manipulate. Hmm? Not my child. Wake up. Yes, your child, my child, all of us. And, and we could sit here and we could get all esoteric and everything and we could debate all day long, sinners by nature, sinners by birth, but here's where we need to go. Okay, fine, let's set that to the side for a minute. You can't wrap your mind around being a sinner by birth. You cannot wrap your mind about being a sinner by nature, but let's all hit one truth that none of us really want to talk about. We are also all sinners by choice. And I may not can control how I was born or what I was born into, but I can absolutely and must answer for the choices that I make. And the fact is, I am a sinner based on what I do. And if you can't wrap your mind around being a sinner by birth and a sinner by nature, then every one of us has to admit, yes, I am a sinner by choice. I choose to do wrong. I choose to fail God. I choose to do this, this thing over here that I shouldn't. I choose not to do what I should do. That's on me. And yes, we can talk about poor Onesimus. He was a slave. He didn't deserve that. But fundamentally, he chose to steal from a man. And that was what he needed to answer for. We're all guilty, y'all. Onesimus couldn't help what he was, but he could help what he did. And so as Tychicus is watching this unfold, he sees a slave who is clearly guilty. Onesimus is dead to rights. But you know what else he sees in verses 10 through 17? 
Yeah, he sees a slave that is guilty, but he also sees a supplication that was gutsy. Think of what Paul asked of Philemon. Philemon is in a culture that how you treat your slaves says a lot about you, and if you are at the level that you claim to be, then you are going to maintain constant command of your slaves, and you're going to keep them in line, and you're going to be the, the, the king of your castle, and oh, you're going to treat them the way they deserve to be treated. He's got all that going against him. And in the midst of all that, Paul says, man, I got something to ask of you, and it's, it's pretty out there. It's pretty gutsy. Look at verse 10. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels. Whom I would have retained with me, that in my stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever. And listen to verse 16. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me. Verse 17, if thou count me therefore partner, receive him as myself. Paul doesn't just ask Philemon to forgive Onesimus. He asks Philemon to free him and to elevate him to a member of the family. Here's what Paul is saying. Philemon, you're saved. You name the name of Christ. Now I'm asking you to do something pretty bold to prove it. See, and Tychicus is back here like, wow. I mean, I know that's what he said he was going to write, but I, I thought he might even it out a little bit. That's exactly what he wrote. Now what's Philemon going to do? Here's the problem. Paul's supplication doesn't change the fact that Onesimus has done wrong and needs to be held accountable. Justice and to some degree righteousness demands that Onesimus pay a price. And yet Paul asks this of him. So how does he do that? How does he do that? You see... Tychicus sees a guilty slave, a slave who's guilty, and he sees a supplication that's gutsy, but that only works if there's a substitutionary gift. Because look what Paul follows this up with in verse number 18. I'm asking you not just to forgive him. I'm asking you to make him a member of your family. I'm asking you to see him as a brother. I'm asking you to treat him as you would treat me. And here's what I'm going to do so that you can do so in good conscience. Verse 18. If he hath wronged thee, or if he oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. Onesimus can't pay, your, can't pay his debt, but I can. This is a wonderful, wonderful doctrinal truth that's called imputation. Whatever he deserves, put it on me. I'm asking you, this supplication's pretty gutsy, but I'm backing it up by a substitutionary gift. 
My request can only be granted to Philemon if you're satisfied that this is a righteous one. And so I'm securing this by offering to set right all the offenses of Onesimus. I'll pay his debt in his stead. What did Tychicus see? He saw a slave that was guilty. He saw, a sub, he saw a supplication that was gutsy. He saw a substitutionary gift, and then he takes a step back, and you know what he sees just in the whole thing? The same thing we see, the source of all grace. Mercy would be forgiving Onesimus. But if Philemon does what Paul asked him to do, that's grace. That's making him part of the family. That's paying him for his labor. I'm not going to read for time's sake, but maybe you notice this. It's interesting that we get to one-third of the epistle, ten verses, before Paul ever mentioned Onesimus by name. But in those verses, in that one-third, in those ten verses, Paul doesn't mention Onesimus by name, but I'll tell you who he does mention by name, Jesus. And he does it six times. What do we take from that? He starts in verse number three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the epistle in verse 25, he closes it with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Tychicus, I want you to take this letter to Philemon. Now, I've written in here, I'm pretty sure Philemon's going to go for this. Onesimus, I'm pretty sure you're going to be all right. Philemon's a good man. But if I'm honest, I don't know for sure. So here's what I've done. I've started it with Jesus. I've ended it with Jesus. And I've sprinkled Jesus all through the middle of it. If that doesn't get through to Philemon, I don't know what will. That's the best I can do. And that's what he did. The matter wasn't settled when Paul hands the letter to Tychicus. All he can do is begin and end it with the source of all grace. Now, this is the most important part of the message. So what? Nice little story. How does it end? Well, we know in Colossians... Onesimus is received as a member of that church, so that's good. He's not dead. Okay. So what do we take from this? Can I remind you that every one of us, man, woman, child, every one of us are all guilty slaves. We're guilty by birth. We're guilty by nature. We're guilty by choice. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Paul told the Romans, as is written, 
There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You may not can wrap your mind around the idea that you're a sinner by birth or a sinner by nature, but every one of us has to admit we are sinners by choice. We have offended God, we have come short of his holiness, and we deserve nothing but his wrath. But just like Onesimus in being guilty slaves, we are offered the opportunity to not just be forgiven, but to be part of God's family. If we were to ask God for this, boy, this would be a gutsy supplication, wouldn't it? Lord, I'm not asking you to forgive me. I'm also asking you to accept me, adopt me. That'd be gutsy if we asked it, but I got good news for you. God offers it. You don't have to ask for it. But as many as received him, them gave he power to become what? The sons of God. Galatians 4 verse 4, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. For what purpose? To redeem them that were under the law. That we might receive forgiveness? Well, we do, but it goes farther than that. That we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now listen to this. Wherefore, thou art no more a what? A servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. We're guilty slaves, and we're offered this magnificent opportunity, but it only happens because there was a substitutionary gift. You see, God can't offer any of this if somebody doesn't pay the price. If God offers us sonship, if he offers us forgiveness, if he offers us placement, if he offers us adoption, then he's wrong to do it because sin has not been reckoned with. It has not been paid for. The debt remains undealt with. But Jesus Christ came to this earth and took your sin and my sin upon himself and paid the debt that God might offer what he did. How do I know? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, Messiah, the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 2, verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called, called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
Well, Andy, the deal's not done. I mean, yeah, you say you're saved, but do you really know it? Just like when Paul sent that letter, it still was yet to be revealed what would happen. And sometimes in my humanity, I do wrestle with ultimately what's going to happen. But all I know to do, Brother Davies, is put Christ at the middle of it, Christ at the beginning of it, Christ at the end of it, and rest in the arms of the source of all grace. If I don't make it to heaven, y'all, then the Bible is wrong and we're all in a lot of trouble. All I can do is rest in the source of all grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Can I read you some scripture as we close? If you want to join me, it's in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judge, of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That is, sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the so what? Romans 5. Yes, 
we're all guilty sinners. But there was a substitutionary gift. And I'm asking you this morning, not if you're religious, not if you're Baptist, not if you've been in the water, not if you've signed a card or shook my hand. I'm asking you right now, are you resting in the promises of the source of all grace? Without him, you remain guilty. Without him, you remain condemned. Without him, you remain without hope. But if you'll cast yourself into the sovereign grace, the loving heart, the full substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Onesimus couldn't do a thing to help himself. He needed a substitutionary gift, and he got it. You can't help yourself either. You need a substitutionary gift, and you have it. The question is, will you believe? Oh, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. Great. May I remind you, you're not just saved by grace. You live by grace. You need it as much now as you did the day you came to Jesus. And I'm pleading with you, cast yourself again into the midst of that source of all grace and watch what he does. This is what Tychicus saw. And desperately, this is what we need to see too. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, please.